This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 9, episode 34. This is Writing Excuses, science fiction as science education. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm, I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. <laughs> and we are joined by Dr. Brad Wojtek. Say hi, Brad. Hi, Brad. <laughs> Brad, uh, tell us what you're a doctor in. I'm a doctor of neuroscience and a professor of computational neuroscience at UC San Diego. Sweet. And we are also recording live at Westercon in Salt Lake City. <laughs> now, Brad, you pitched this uh, episode topic to us. It's something you're passionate about. Um, this is using science fiction mm-hmm. as an educational device. I assume it's something that you've done before. Uh, yes, actually. I... <clears throat> collaborator of mine, Tim Versteinen, who's a friend of mine, uh, he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he and I had just finished writing a book uh, called Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep uh, by Princeton University Press. And it's basically our way of getting people to accidentally learn something about the brain. So we pretend like, what would happen if a zombie walked into an ER? What would we as, a neuroscience, as neuroscientists would think about what's wrong with its brain. Why do they walk the way they do, et cetera. Why, well, do you have copies of that book here? No, because, it because is not published. I mean, it's, it's on Amazon pre-order right now, but it's not out yet. <laughs> that sounds awesome. That sounds like an entire book-length work of like that XKCD what if, what if stuff. Yeah, kind of, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. So have you used um, uh, science fiction in your classroom before? Um, no, because I'm a new professor, so I haven't oh. taught yet. <laughs> Yo! Ooh. But you know, this is actually something that um, that Launchpad does. Yes. Uh, that, and that's a, a NASA-funded workshop f- that teaches astronomy literature or, uh, to, to writers. Uh, but one of the, the theories behind it is that so many people know things wrong mm-hmm. about how space works because they picked it up from science fiction. And so the idea is if you can train science fiction writers to write it correctly, that mm. you can improve the science literature. It's, it's basically, we know that people like stories, so how to turn science into a narrative. Right. This is kind of like, uh, they're really big a little while ago, was mixing vegetables into foods that people like to eat sneakily. Mm-hmm. And there were a whole round of books about how to do this and get kids to eat healthy stuff by sneaking the vegetables in. We're kind of talking about the same thing with fiction. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let me, uh, Brad, let me throw this, throw this question at you. Um, what, what is your favorite science fiction title for, for laying down a scientific principle? I think... I think I have to go with the classic Asimov's Foundation books. The idea that you could statistically understand how humans as a whole work on large galactic scales was was transformative for me. Um, and I think that's great. And things don't really work that way, but that's kind of going back to your point about mm-hmm. Launchpad. There's negative feedback loops where science writers get it wrong and then the public gets it wrong. But you can also have the positive feedback mm-hmm. loops where you get it right and then you get it right. But there's something to be said about f- walking that fine line and getting it elegantly incorrect. Yeah. Right? Where, it, where it, f- it sort of implants a neat idea that it may not be technically correct, but if you then dig deeper, you can learn a lot more about the way things actually work. I, well, I, need, I need to steal that phrase for my marketing. Elegantly <laughs> incorrect? Elegantly incorrect. <laughs> well, yeah. This actually kind of gets into a concept with science fiction, which is the fiction part of science fiction is we can't 
quite do it yet. Um, and so you can be as technically correct as you want to be. At the end of the day, because we haven't done it yet, it's still hypothesis. It's, yeah. it, and everything about science fiction is. Uh, this is a concept that I have thought about as a writer. What is my duty, um, and not just with science, but with human nature, to represent things in an accurate way that um, it, what, at what stage do my stories become lessons? At what stage do they become stories? And for me, what's going on here is I feel that if you're going to do this, if you're thinking about doing this, what we need is more engaging, interesting, mm -hmm. um, exciting fiction that also has some of these ideas and these, this, this, this technical correctness, um, which I would encourage our listeners to look at. Re um, study good storytelling fundamentals and principles. Come up with great stories, and then adding this in will work. Yeah. Are there, Brad, are there uh, sources that you would point us at, things that our listeners should be reading on a regular basis that are just science? Stuff. Oh wow! I mean, because our listeners, our listeners are writers, right? For the most part, yeah. And they, we want them. We want all of our listeners to be excellent writers. Um, what can we do? Well, to, like in your field, instead yeah, of yeah, in your field, yeah. <laughs> well, so in in terms of let's say science fiction, right? I think a really good modern science fiction writer who gets the science right enough, right, elegantly incorrect, would be um, Richard K. Morgan with the Takashi Novak uh, Kovacs novels. Right, the whole idea of mind uploading, and then what are the consequences of it? I think that he does that very, very well, mm. um, in a intriguing way. Uh, in terms of the actual science side of things, uh, it's so hard. To, there's so many fantastic science bloggers out there right now, oh. and, and public science writers. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna point at Asimov again. If you haven't read now, he's dated. Yeah. Um, let's 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 be yeah. very clear on that. But his ability to write engaging nonfiction mm -hmm. is sometimes um, passed over by people who love his fiction. His nonfiction is fantastic. Some of my favorite nonfiction science pieces were written by Asimov, and he wrote something like three hundred books of nonfiction uh, material. So he he was very prolific. Mm -hmm. I, I sorry, I love the way the World Wide Web uh, lets us read a thing and then click and drill down and just and keep clicking and end up in weird places and my favorite starting point for years has been NASA's astronomy picture of the oh, day yeah. uh, because it starts with a cool picture of space or whatever yeah. and then there's a write-up underneath and the guys who are writing it up have hyperlinked words throughout there and every so often I'll see a word I'm like what's a What's a wolf riot? What's a click? Boom! I'm smarter. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, thinking back, in terms of science writers, uh, there, I, I have to do a plug for Oliver Sacks. Mm, he's actually, yeah. he's, he's a neurologist, so he's a medical doctor. Um, and he wrote several fantastic books. He's still writing, actually. Um, the Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. We sort of took his style which is his, his books, each chapter represents a case study of somebody with a very peculiar, peculiar specific, rare kind of uh, brain damage. And so the, the man who mistook his wife for hat, the title of the book comes from one of his patients who had the inability to recognize faces. Um, and reading those books is really what turned me on in a lot of ways to studying the brain. Because you read these things and you say, I don't even understand how this is possible. This is real stuff, too. Mm -hmm. uh, um, trying to think of, of very specific cases. There's um, uh, a very, uh, Cotard's delusion. Um, 
I don't want to get this incorrect, but uh, I believe the Cotard's delusion is you believe that your loved ones have been replaced by imposters. Yeah. And nobody knows why that happens exactly. We still don't have a solid, uh, like, solid understanding. But the idea is that the communication between your facial processing, visual processing parts of your brain, and the emotional tagging parts of the brain is disrupted. So you recognize people still. Your vision is intact. You can still see them. But you no longer, your brain isn't assigning the right emotional content to them. So when I see my wife, I, I love my wife a great deal. And when I see her, I feel that love for her. And that gets combined into one percept of my wife, that mixture of the emotion plus the vision. But when that gets disconnected, suddenly you're, you're this person looks like my wife, but she doesn't feel like my wife. It's amazing. Right. It's, he's, he's a fantastic writer. Oh my is, that, is that related at all to, I think this is in the same book, the, the thing where you do not recognize part of your own body as be, belonging to yourself? Oh, that actually, you know what, that might be, that might actually be the Qatar's delusion. I, I'm, I'm getting the names wrong because I'm not a medical doctor. What's the one um, where I'm standing on the scale and I can't see my feet? <laughs> <laughs> Cheesecake. Cheesecake. Yeah. Okay. Let's yeah. stop. We got a book of the week. For a book of the week. <laughs> <laughs> on that wonderful note, Dr. Brad, you're going to tell us about the city in the city. Okay. So China Mayville, I think, is a, another fantastic uh, uh, modern sci-fi fantasy writer um, and also a great literary scholar. He, he does great work. The City in the City is phenomenal to me because it's about two cities that exist in the exact same physical location, but uh, the citizens in each one have to ignore one another outright um, or else this sort of pseudo-mystical force comes in and, and sort of kicks them out of reality or something like that. Um, and that's because of this ongoing long war between them. And the only reason that the war is at this ceasefire, so to speak, is because they've agreed to just not attend to each other anymore. And I've actually written about this. I, I presented this at a, at a, a literary conference about the neuroscience of unseeing. What, what, how, can you unsee something that you have seen? What would that Please. actually entail? Can you? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. Yeah. And that book is, it is really fascinating what it does to the brain of the reader right. trying to, to map all of these things that are happening. Audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. Start a 30-day free trial membership and pick up a copy of The City in the City by China Mieville. And I don't know who the narrator is because I don't have my stuff. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, writing this nonfiction in a way that is accessible. When you gave, um, and our listeners weren't able to hear this, but when you got up during opening ceremonies and talked about what you do, you mentioned, oh, and people's eyes glaze over right after about the third or fourth word. Um, but when you're approaching science fiction as science education, when you're writing um, your story, when you're writing nonfiction as science education in an engaging and interesting way, how do you make difficult top topics accessible to a lay audience? Well, I mean, I, we just we just stole a couple of plays out of your playbook, right? You you make engaging stories. Mm -hmm. So one example that we we give is um, if if it's historically true and weird, that's the best combination. Mm. Um, so one of the chapters we talk about the history of endocrinology. Um, so endocrinology is uh, the study of how hormones affect behavior. Okay. And yeah. the history of endocrinology started. The father of modern endocrinology started. Uh, because this guy was, uh, I f I'm totally blanking on his name off the top of my head right now, but uh, he was getting older and he felt like he was losing his vitality. This is in the mid-18, late-1800s. And uh, so what he decided to do was he noticed that certain animals are vigorous. Uh, and so he took a mixture of blood and semen from dogs 
and injected that mixture into himself to try and regain his vitality. This is true. Uh, when you can suddenly talk about everything that we know about modern endocrinology is thought to stem from this guy who wanted his vigor back, so he injected himself with dog semen. <laughs> that makes for compelling and interesting I will stories. not read the whole book. <laughs> right. Yes. I read the whole book. Yeah. I think the way we, 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 we actually have a pause in the book and we say something like, let's stop for a moment and reflect on your life choices and realize that everything that led you to where you are right now, you have probably not injected yourself with dog semen. <laughs> so you take a moment to reflect. And be happy about that decision in your life. You know, when, when, we, uh, when we talk about stories and, and point of view, you know, whose point of view are we going to put a fiction scene from? Uh, we often talk about the old Orson Scott Card thing. If you pick the character in the most pain, the person who has the most to lose or the most to gain. And that's really what you're talking about with, with that guy, with Oliver Sacks' books. He's telling a story about a person dealing with this science, mm. and that pulls you right in. And in the process of that narrative, you become very familiar with the principles behind it. I think uh, there's, there's another angle on that. I mean, there's, there's the character in the most pain. When there is a scientific principle that is critical to my story that I need to explain, it is, it is the character who is the most affected by that and the most ignorant of it. Um, and so, I mean, there's a mixture of pain and ignorance, and so I can take the, the reader on a voyage of discovery, because mm. the characters already know how it works, are not going to maid and butler their way through. Yeah, I, but I think there's there's one more layer to that, which is that if it if it is the character that that is in pain or or ignorant that they they need this information for something, it gives the readers a reason to have a stake in understanding it. It makes it important as opposed to just, look at how my plasma gun works. Uh, which, and there's nothing wrong with look at how my plasma gun works, but unless it is, unless there is a stake in understanding it. It's broken and I need it to kill somebody or I'm going to die. Right. Exactly. I, I like this idea of humans latch on to stories. Mm -hmm. It's what we do. It's what we look for. Um, and, and putting that in. Any other tips? Someone's approaching doing this themselves. Um, how would you suggest that they get their technical knowledge? You know, a lot of our listeners are experts in some area. How can they make use of that? Put it into their stories or into a nonfiction piece in a way that'll be really engaging. Well, one of the things is is using metaphor mm -hmm. um, to to so that you can can help the listener compare it to something that they are already familiar with. Right. Listener. Hi guys, uh, <laughs> to the reader, what they're already POV error. To. Yeah, um, which is which is. It sounds like a, some some of what you guys are doing with having the zombie come in because there's not actual zombies, but you're using them as a metaphor right. for other conditions. Meta metaphor is incredibly powerful, obviously, right? Um, and if you can find a way to use a metaphor that gets the technical idea. Uh, so I was a physics major as an undergraduate initially um, before I changed majors. And I remember I feel, felt like every single class started by the professor saying, everything that you just learned in that last class, last semester, was right to an approximation, but not really. Here, here you know, let me, let me teach you, right? So metaphors are great for explaining up to a point. Uh, and you have, to, you have to let the person kind of do some of their own exploration along the way and make that connection. Empathy types of connections are really good. I mean, that's why we bring in character histories, mm. right? Because it's not just you, you can have the metaphor side of things, but also you're engaging a person's empathy for somebody else's situation, right? And then that brings the reader or listener into the story a little bit as well. And, it, you know, it engages them. It makes them a part of it. 
Excellent. Well, this has been great. Um, I think I am going to point at Howard for our writing prompt. Before oh. I do the writing prompt, I want to plug your zombie book, and I don't know how to plug it. Tell us what... What, what's the title so people can go find it on Amazon? Because I totally want to read this. Yeah. It's, it's, the title is Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? Obviously, it's an homage. Uh, and it's on Amazon for pre-order right now, I believe. Okay. And, so and, as of this recording, by the time the episode airs, it, when, when does it ship? I think know? it ships September 1st. So, so they may still have to wait. Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? That's right. Oh, I'm so, <laughs> I'm so in. I'm so in. Um and now I, I was supposed to be spending that time uh, coming, up, coming up with a writing prompt. Okay, okay, so here's your writing prompt. Sheep desperately needs a delaying tactic because if it gets shorn, bad things are going to happen. We're going to assume sentient sheep. Go. All right, this has been Writing Excuses. You have excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.